Chris. Jason, how's it going? It's good. It feels like we just did this because I was editing last week's episode and it finished three minutes before we started this one. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So you already are fresh on the the podcast, uh, you know, the yeah. train. Yeah. yeah, I got my, my mojo going. Cool. How's uh, How's your week been? It's good. I uh, I notice in this last recording, I say I'm in like a lot, and so I'm really self conscious, which is one of the bad things about editing a podcast episode. I'm like, yeah, you totally do. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, this last week's good. I spent the month of May in a real health kick, so I am a bit overweight, and by a bit, I mean unhealthy levels. And so I spent the month of May like working out every day, at least for 30 minutes. Uh, since I am kind of larger, it's harder on my joints. Like I walked and I biked. I like slowly worked my way into it. And then last week, two days before my birthday, I was like, I'm going to push myself a little more. And so I got warmed up with like jumping jacks. And then I hurt my ankle and I have been able to walk for a week. Oh, I'm no. In, I'm in a boot and crutches now and like. So sad. Oh, man. That's funny. You overdid it. Yeah. What a, what a birthday present to yourself. I was like, you know, I finally like, I finally got this thing going and like taking the right steps. And then I got punished for it. Yeah. Well, you, you were taking the right steps until you made the wrong leaps. <laughs> oh, man. That sucks, man. How long do you think you're going to be kind of out like that? I don't know. I thought it'd be better by now. I went to the doctor Saturday and they gave me some medicine and it hasn't really helped at all. So I went back this morning and they're like, huh? They said, we don't know what's wrong. Uh, You have arthritis in your ankle and then I don't know what happened to your foot. So I'm going to put you in a boot and crutches. We'll do a CT Monday and then we'll let you know. Oh, no. (laughs) That's... That's not good. That's like, uh, sorry, we can't reproduce this bug. Uh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a taste of my own medicine. <laughs> That's awful. It's hopefully, all right. It's- hopefully it doesn't last too long. As long as you don't hurt your fingers so you can't you know, work, um, you should be fine though, right? That's kind of what I think. Whenever they like, whenever I go to see the doctor about like a foot injury, they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, I sit at a desk all day. Like, <laughs> it's okay. I don't need a letter for work. <laughs> That's so funny. It's Man, right. hopefully you get better soon. That's uh, it's a rough one. It, it's good though to be in the boot. Like I was talking to my boss, and he was like, "I'm sorry that happened." I was like, "I'm." It's a lot better to like walk around not be in pain though, so I'll take it. Yeah, that's what What's you get for you? exercising, man. Well, <laughs> that's, that's what I get for poor life choices the last thirty <laughs> years. Uh, um. Oh, this past week I've been like. I'm just documenting the hell out of things for uh, launching Jumpstart Pro next week. I was hoping to do it this week, but oh, yeah, there's just so much like stuff to document. It's funny because, you know, you like build a product like this and then over time you forget all the stuff you built and mm. then documenting it all. I'm like, boy, there's like a lot of features that we've added to this and like a bunch more that obviously need to get done too. But it's been like kind of amazing to like go through that. I'm like, wow, we like accomplished quite a bit. There's there's some other stuff that's unfinished. Like uh, we don't have API uh, support just yet because we're exploring 
um, using graffiti for that, which is going to be super cool. Um, but it's just a little bit more, I mean, it's early. So like the way their generators work and stuff are very like tied to how they work, um, you know, at their jobs when they're building this. So like, it probably needs to be made a little bit more generic for other use cases, um, like ours, but, um, yeah, hopefully next week, Jumpstart Pro will be out officially. That's exciting. I notice, so even though I haven't worked on the project with you in a long time, I still get all the updates and it looks exciting. Yeah, that's good. Um, there's been, you know, multiple people like pinging me on Twitter and Slack and email and stuff being like, hey, when's this coming out? Like, I can't wait for it. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting it out the door and seeing what people do with it. I'm hoping to also put together like a uh, like I want to have a page or something, maybe you know, emails or something that go out showcasing what people are building with it, just to kind of inspire each other. And I, I think I'm gonna maybe this weekend put together a little forum so that people can um, you know discuss how to do things uh, inside and how to how to use Jumpstart or customize it for whatever their their purposes are. And I think doing that in a f- like private forum will make things. Um, just kind of extra documentation. If someone else is like poking around, wants to do the same thing, hopefully they'll find, you know, notes on that from somebody else. That's great. I am excited for you. That is, uh, that is a very exciting time. Yeah. It's been, uh, what last August was when we started it. So yeah, it looks- I'm like, looks- as long as we don't take a whole year to get this out the door, then I'll be fine. <laughs> As long as it's like you get it in July. Yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, again, it's like I have Go Rails and uh, Jumpstart, like, as and my Hatchbox. primary things. Or uh, not Jumpstart, Hatchbox and Go Rails. Yeah. And then this is kind of on the side of that. So there's there's a lot going on between all three of those. Yeah. I looked at the commit history and it was like when we started it, we like rocked it. And then it was like three months of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as we got busy with stuff. Yeah, um, life's stupid. Have you uh, put any time into Madmin recently? I put a few commits together. Uh, I don't remember what they were around. It was a couple weeks ago. I've been working on the two SaaS apps I launched, like trying to, they're two different co founders, each one. So I've been trying to like balance time between those. Yeah. You know, no, it's still on my radar. Uh, I'm still trying. I'm trying to do like small things here and there so I can stay engaged. But yeah, well, you know, it's uh, it's the same thing. You got a full time job, two other projects, and then Mad Men. Like it's hard to get. It's and kids and family, you know. So the amount of extra time you have to work on something like Mad Men is very minimal, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my kid yesterday dropped a book on my face, like one of those kids books. And I just like, it was very represent representative of like how I felt the last two weeks. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, well, well, um, we have a guest on the show today, Charlie strand. We, uh, met at RailsConf randomly. I forget, uh, what day it was, but, uh, you know, walking by in the hallway and we're like, uh, maybe you recognize you. And, um, so, yeah, here we are a few weeks later. Um, Charlie, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, 
my name is Charlie Strand. Uh, I work for a company called Oddball. Um, we uh, we primarily work in the federal space. Uh, specifically, I work uh, directly with uh, VA projects. So, um, been working with Rails since 1.2. Um, so, been around the block for a while. Um, and it was one of those awesome, embarrassing moments at RailsConf when I was like, hey, I think I've met you somewhere. Oh, no, I've just watched you on GoRails. <laughs> it's so funny. Like, I met a ton of people at RailsConf this year because I, I think last time I went, you know, I was still pretty early doing the screencasts and stuff. But like this time, every time I sat down at lunch or whatever, like everybody at the table knew who I was. And I was like, this is just strange. It's such a weird experience. But it was so awesome to like, you know, put faces to uh, the names that I might see on email or notifications or whatever and uh, actually meet people. So it's great to to have met you and then have you on the podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, so we're, well, let's start with your, your background. How did you get into programming and, and eventually into Rails? Yeah, so uh, I actually have a business degree in college, uh, came out of that and uh, at the time I got out of college, the job market wasn't exactly awesome. So I ended up teaching myself how to program. And one of my best friends in college uh, was learning Rails at the time. And this was actually pre-Rails 1.0. And so he was kicking me that direction. And um, I started learning from him and annoying him and having him debug all my errors. And eventually he's just like, dude, you got to do this by yourself. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Did that, ended up um, getting a job uh, pretty much writing transactional SQL at a tran uh, transportation company. Uh, moved on to writing Objective-C uh, for Mac applications and then started writing Rails in the media space and then now writing Rails in the uh, federal space. When, when you were teaching yourself uh, to code there, like... Did it come natural to you or, or like, how was that? How did that go? Cause I see, I learned programming back in like grade school. Cause my dad gave me his old Atari programming book and like, I hadn't gone through algebra and stuff yet. So like these variable things didn't make sense to me and whatever, but you know, like, I'm always curious, like when you self teach yourself, like how, how were those struggles? Cause it, it, unless you have someone to rely on, to ask questions. And even then, like it can be pretty tough. Yeah. So I think the initial things like variables, loops, Boolean logic came really easy to me, but I completely got lost when I started learning objects. Um, the whole concept of when to use, you know, self or not. And as a self-taught person, I didn't really understand the difference, uh, but eventually powered through it and figured it out. And now I feel the same way about functional programming. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. funny that it's funny that you mentioned the object part because that's a thing I struggled with even after I was already programming. I had been my start was more I guess in server side was WordPress, but even in school I was taking like object oriented programming one, object oriented programming two, and like I knew how to make objects. But everybody used the blueprint in the house example. And it, for some reason, it just never clicked with me. And then I started actually using objects. I was like, oh, I finally get it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I think I had a similar experience of like, I what was it? I, I was 
teaching myself basic and then I, I bought like a, you know, C++ for dummies or something. And their examples were like, here's a VCR and you can press play and stuff. And it was like, I sort of get it, but it definitely doesn't make any sense. Like this is, this is weird. And yeah, it, it takes a long time. I felt like to wrap my head around it. Cause it's just like, a, it's really just like a grouping of stuff and that's about it. It's not really like. Yeah, it kind of, I mean, it kind of is a sort of template, like a blueprint for a house, but at the same time, it's like all in your head. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. And I think for me, one of the things where it started to click was that, you know, the blueprint for the house was one thing, but when you started dealing with five or six houses, that's when I started to realize what was similar, like the class versus the objects. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, the other problem with all these examples is like they're not they're not super practical. I feel like it makes a lot of sense in in Rails when you're like here's an object and it represents this database row. Like you can interact with that and ask for things on it and you're like, "Oh, I can understand how these are like comparable, but like if you have a class for animals and then you have subclasses for dogs and cats, it's like Okay, but but why? Like, I, I don't understand why we need that. I'm actually pretty grateful for the blueprint house scenario, knowing that you read a book that was like, here's a VCR, press play. <laughs> I've just given up. <laughs> yeah, My kid I, would be like, what's a VCR? <laughs> that's funny, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, it, it kind of made sense to me uh, where it was like, okay, this is this thing you can interact with and – like, yes, it does store data inside of itself, but you can also tell it to do things like play and pause and rewind and stuff. Um, so th- that helped me like wrap my head around things. But yeah, it was when it was like those, uh, I, I remember in school and college, we were like learning about recursion and you could watch the other students in the, in the class, like just be like, what the hell is he talking about? And then all of a sudden, like, light bulb moment. And then they're like, oh, of course, recursion, duh. And, and like, you could watch the entire class one by one start to wrap their head around it. And it was just a strange, like, moment wa- watching everybody. Because that is also another, like, kind of weird concept to learn. And it, probably the biggest issue with all this stuff is programming is, like, just in your head. So you have to imagine these things. You can't, like draw it out the same way or, or as easily. So it's a, uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. So you, you said you uh, work for federal government. Is that right? So I, I work for a company that contracts in the federal space. Okay. Are you allowed to share some of the type of work you do? Yeah. So we're uh, everything we do is actually open source. Uh, so we, uh, the projects I work on are for the uh, department of veteran affairs. And we're working to provide APIs into um, into some of those internal systems for uh, veterans. Uh, some folks on our in our company are working directly for the veterans, and then my team kind of works for the veteran service organizations to provide the software they create access into seeing um, claims for a veteran. Um, we're working to automate the claims process and really just speed up and make it more efficient for all of those services that the VA is providing. That's awesome. Yeah. That sounds like uh, 
kind of fulfilling work. Yeah, it is. Um, and you get to see the benefit. Um, I myself, I'm not a veteran, but many people uh, in our company and on our program are. So it is, it's interesting because they get to see it help their lives every day, plus help the lives of, you know, tons of veterans across the country. Um, and it, it's pretty meaningful stuff. Do you have, so when I think, when I think like government, I think I like kind of having to go through a lot of channels to get things done. Uh, but like as a contractor and also doing open source is, do you feel that or is it pretty easy to get work done? Um, both. <laughs> okay. So, um, certain things we have the freedom to go ahead and, um, design the systems the way we want to design them and do what we think is best for the project to fulfill the needs of the contract that we're on. Um, but when it comes to accessing a new system that we might not have access to and need, then we have to go through some of those steps that can be a little painful. Um, you know, and rightfully so, uh, you know, the government wants to protect their data and make sure that it's um, protected and secure. And, but there are challenges. <laughs> uh, does that reminds me of like, you know, does that there's been times in the past where like startups have shut down, but they tried to open source their like stuff. Um, do you guys have to deal with that where it's like, well, we want to shut down or, or like we, we need to build this open source, but like we also need to protect our code and our data so that we don't accidentally leak anything publicly like credentials or, or whatever, like, do you guys have to deal with that very much? Well, and I think some of that comes into our architecture. So how we take as much of our sensitive information into our infrastructure, um, as opposed to into our code. So, uh, we run on AWS GovCloud. Uh, we have a pretty sophisticated, uh, deployment, infrastructure, auto-scaling infrastructure, everything, and a whole team of people that are responsible for that. Um, there's proxies and all these things to get into the government systems that are protected by IP addresses and all of those um, security concerns, which is really nice because it kind of takes the pressure off of us as developers to, um, I don't, I mean, we still have security in our minds, but the deep, deep parts of security, uh, our DevOps team protects us for. Oh, that's nice. What uh, what are the different? I don't really know. What are the differences between like AWS uh, as as normal people would be using it versus the GovCloud? Uh, that's a great question, and I might not be the best person to answer it. <laughs> um, yeah. But there are, you know, I know there's HIPAA level protections. There's there's more things uh, security wise that are. You know, the government has certified as a more secure environment for them. I know Azure has the same kind of a infrastructure. Um, again, I might not be the best person to answer that question, but yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I'll tell you the main difference is I'm on their website and they have the most American logo ever. It is a cloud with a U.S. flag and a lock in the middle of it. <laughs> that explains everything. Screams freedom to me. <laughs> no, it's right. Twelve different like certifications and things like that. They talk about on the GovCloud page. 
That's cool. Yeah. Um, does I, I would assume you get access to maybe the majority of the same services, but maybe not everything. Because, Correct. Yeah. yeah. And it has actually, there are some services, I can't remember which, but in the past that we've wanted access to that are in regular AWS that weren't in GovCloud. So we've had to use a different technique to solve the problem. Mm. So you can still use regular stuff. You might just have to build some of that security stuff yourself, I guess, maybe. We can, but if it's infrastructure based, we, you know, we're not going to put it in two different places. So sometimes we just have to come up with a different software solution for it or whatnot. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, How many is, so like, what's the scale of, stuff that you guys are working on, like how many users are you like supporting? I know you mentioned you have auto scaling stuff. Um, and, and typically you don't really set that up until you have quite a few, you know, people that you're, you're supporting. So I was so just curious. We share an infrastructure base with the, so as we're working on the veteran service organization part, we share infrastructure and some of our code with the veteran facing folks. And that is what drives all of va.gov. So, I mean, the scale is pretty much any veteran uh, in the country using va.gov. That's awesome. Um, so w- when, uh, or, or what kind of projects have you been working on there? Like, uh, can you share some more about like what interesting things you've, you've done? Yeah. So mainly our overarching goal is to reduce the time it takes for um, when a veteran or a veteran service organization submits a claim to the VA by the time that a decision is made. And right now that time frame is, is fairly long. And so the projects we're working on are, um, you know, step-by-step, step, what can we do? What, what can we automate? We're automating, we've automated some of the initial forms already. Uh, that get submitted to the VA as opposed to them having to be faxed in. Um, so right now we're working through that process um, on my team and some of the other folks in our, um, you know, in our company, you know, they were the key members into getting VA.gov rewritten. So. That's pretty cool. Uh, do, do you have to also like, c- cause you're accepting these forms electronically now do you do you also have to go and worry about like how are we going to roll this out so that we can get everyone who's submitting these the new process and how to understand how to use that instead of you know just fax documents over right yeah we have a handful of current veteran service organizations that are uh they're willing test partners let's say because um they're eager for us to get done (laughs) So they're eager to help us test along the way. Cool. Um, so uh, how how big are your, your teams and stuff of, of developers? And like, what do you, how do you guys structure your, your development work? So our project, the, um, like my, the team I'm on sits with five to six people, depending on how you want to, um, Divi, I'm up three developers, uh, project manager, uh, a UX person, because we do have UX, even though we're building APIs, we do have our develop developers portal, which is full documentation. Um, 
And so that's developer.va.gov if anybody's interested in taking a look at our work. <laughs> um, but uh, so, and then there's three and will be four teams about that size uh, working in the project, working on just different aspects of um, the VA modernization um, tasks. I'm curious um, if you mentioned this, I'm sorry, I, I didn't catch it. How did you end up working this job? Yeah. So um, I didn't mention it <laughs> at my last job. Uh, we ended up getting outsourced. And so I ended up being um, in the market and it just so happened that through some contacts, I gotten the right people, uh, the right people called. I, they liked me. They didn't hate me. And uh, I'm here. Did you have to go through all the uh, government security clearance things, even working for a contractor? We have to go through uh, background checks. And then we do have to get um, basic, uh, go through basic stuff with the VA, but not not really like a security clearance, more of a like a background check. Yeah, makes sense. Make sure you're not doing anything shady like using SOAP APIs. <laughs> um, are you oh, guys you like- joke. Oh, you joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, like, I pulled up the developer.va.gov and, like, you know, I see JSON API format and stuff like that. Like, the this seems like a fairly um, good and modern way of doing things. Like, this, this stuff does not seem very hard to implement, which I was curious, like, have you had to, do you have a clean slate that you get to work with on some of these things? Or do you have to deal with like old nasty soap or XML and like old systems and and upgrade those or like, how how does that work? So the short answer is we have to, so you don't have to. Um, So we deal with a lot of soap uh, endpoints internally. Um, different organ or different areas inside the VA, um, different systems that we have to interact with. But that's kind of what our API is designed to do is act as that middle person to access these different systems that are in different formats and then return it in a compliant basis. Does that um, does that turn out to be like hard for you guys to test and into design? Like are there is it harder to translate between those two? Um, you know, what, what are the challenges you guys run into with that stuff? Uh, you know, the challenge, the challenges normally come down to getting access to the systems to begin with. Uh, and then once we get access, we do a pretty good job of building a lot of mock data. Um, and we take real responses that we get from those systems. And then instead of always having to hammer a direct government system, we, we work against those mocks do all that development till we push it up to a system that's going to hit an internal VA system, do more testing there, make sure all of our assumptions were correct, and then sign off on it and roll it off to production. Are you using like, uh, are, are you dynamically generating that data or using fixtures or? Um... Uh, we have a tool um, we call Betamox. Um, and so it's kind of like, it's kind of like a VCR, um, but it's a little bit different. Um, and so sometimes, you know, we use those to 
uh, instead of, well, sometimes we hand modify them, but mainly we go onto a, a system and we have it set up. So we have a recording mode, kind of like PCR does. And then we just record new responses, copy them down, put them into a, a mock data repo. And then that way, since we're recording a real response, we can deal with um, you know, bad data when it's bad data and not necessarily just somebody made a mistake in making a mock. Yeah, that's cool. Um, do you run into like the sort of typical thing of at some point, uh, you know, one of the endpoints changes and your, your mock is outdated and then you don't find out until production breaks or are you guys actively resetting that and, and testing things or? Yeah. So, um, we don't run our, so of our upper level environments, we have a development of staging and a production and we don't run mocks against our staging environment. So we do run into that situation, but we find out at the staging level. Oh, that's nice. I'm curious. So I looked up beta mocks cause I hadn't heard of it and it looks like that's actually, is that actually something y'all wrote? Yeah. Is it named after uh, beta disk? I have no idea. It predates me, but I hope so. I mean, if it's a replacement for VCR, it seems like or, natural. You mean Betamax? Betamax. Betamax was before like I was like a toddler. So. Yeah. You remember those big old laser discs that were like DVD. giant DVDs? Yeah. Those things are sweet. So, Laser disc is what I'm thinking of. I remember going to Blockbuster and they had the Back to the Future laser disc. Yeah. Man, I wish we had a laser disc player. I mean, we had a VCR and they probably had Back to the Future on VHS, but that thing was just so shiny and like right there. Yeah, and they were they were like, you know, record size. They were massive. Those are so cool. My one of my friends had some. And then uh yeah, I don't I don't think I ever see saw like as a kid beta max or anything, but I think um, I was thinking the laser disc. Yeah. 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 Betamax was discontinued in March of 2016. 2016? What? <laughs> That's what it says on Wikipedia. Amazing. So someone was still producing them. That's yeah. Cool. No, I wasn't alive for the Betamax. I was thinking laser disc. That is so. Great. Now we need to work on our laser disc. Uh, our laser yeah. mock. Laser mocks. Laser mocks. Yes. I love it. Oh, cool. Uh, Betamox is a, a built on top of Faraday. That's awesome. Faraday is pretty sweet for like, uh, I should do a screencast on that too. But like, you know, for anybody that's not familiar, you can use your HTTP clients, but like Faraday allows you to make those interchangeable. So if you're using, say, uh, various different APIs and each gem uses Faraday, then you could actually interchange which library you use for each one of those to, you know, use a different tool. If you, if you decided that or, or something new comes out, that's maybe a little faster or whatever, you can kind of make those interchangeable. That's awesome. Um, do you guys have other cool uh, open source projects like this that, that you guys have published? Uh, I, I am not sure, honestly, uh, we want to do more um, for sure. Uh there's that tussle between um, work, making sure that we're delivering the value as the, not only the, to the client, but also the clients being the government. Um, and, you know, finding things that are useful outside of this niche to break out. 
right? Like, uh, you know, you're like, you get to open, publish your, your site as open source or whatever, but like, it's nice to extract things in reusable ways, but it's, there's always like, well, we'd like to improve this, but you know, or the main, like we're getting paid to not do that. We're getting paid to actually build the main website. Right. It's also like we could extract a gem that, you know, allows you to access VA claims from multiple different sites, but there's really no need to do that when it's already (laughs) not other people need to do that than our app. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, your, uh, department of veterans affairs, GitHub repository or GitHub uh, org has 358 repositories on it. That's a ton. That's awesome. And it looks like these, a lot of these have, uh, at least here on the first page, have quite a bit of activity too. Yep. Everything we do is open source. I mean, if there's, if anybody has, yeah, is looking at the code and never wants to, uh, make a pull request for some reason, if we did something that you think we could do better, uh, definitely would review it that's cool it's amazing to see you know stuff like this being built open source it's just a like obviously a whole lot of people aren't gonna go and you know contribute to it but being open source like it is cool that maybe someone spies a security vulnerability publicly and can go and fix it for you or at least notify you about it rather than just like going straight to your site and attacking it um, you know, that is pretty awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you mentioned earlier about, you know, like personal information, keeping that protected. Uh, what are some of the things you guys do, um, to go to protect, uh, data? Cause this is a, you know, the past year and stuff with GDPR and et cetera. Uh, this seems to be a much more hot topic lately and something like developers really just can't avoid anymore. Yeah. So in in our case, it's one of those, it's as important as uh, making sure all the unit tests pass on a pull request that everybody's reviewing. You know, there is, there is a line item that we have to sign off on that no PII is being exposed and people that are reviewing every pull request are making sure that that's true. Um, We also have, folks that are reviewing um, our CloudWatch logs and making sure that stuff is not uh, showing up that shouldn't be showing up in our lower level environments before it hits an upper level environment. Um, we try to, um, we use encrypted attributes when we do need to store stuff. So um, it's at the, at the forefront of everything that we're doing, protecting PIIs right up there. Yeah, the are you using like the Adder encrypted uh, gem for that, or, or something yep. in house? Yep. No, Adder encrypted. Yep. Nice, that's awesome. Um, what are some of the? I mean, you guys probably have like specific things, but I guess for general advice for people, like, do you recommend that they encrypt things? Like, I mean, some people are going as far as encrypting email addresses in their database. Like, is that um, something you recommend or too far? Like, wh- where do you draw the line? Uh, for us, absolutely, we would encrypt things like that. Uh, me personally, on a personal project, um, if if it's only an email address, it, 
the exposure is that here the email addresses are, you know, somebody was a hacker, they get all the email addresses. Now, if they can tie that email address to other information about the user, then absolutely, I would highly recommend that it's encrypted. Um, I would encrypt everything you can, but the overhead on a small app, if you're just starting out on a greenfield project, might get in the way of, you know, your your progress. But when you get to a bigger level app, you know, as we see data breaches all the time, the more you can protect, the better. And do you, do you think it's something you should maybe, it's tough because trying to figure out, you know, like, should you do this from the very beginning? Or is there, you know, a, once you hit a thousand users in your database, should you go, you go back and try and uh, modify your database and encrypt the emails and things and, and maybe address it more when it's larger, but maybe a little bit like still small, but it will still cause you a little bit more pain than doing it at, in the beginning. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that every project has different requirements. Um, if it's a project. So from our perspective, if we were to start a new project that we expect to be from a government standpoint, that's going to be large. We have those expectations at the beginning. So we would start at the beginning. Um, if I'm building a website to track the places at Walt Disney World that I visited, um, and I have no idea if anybody's ever going to use it, um, I probably wouldn't start that at the beginning. I would wait till there was some traction and some need. Yeah, I think that's probably the the right approach for the two. If you if you were planning on having lots of users in you know your first year or two then yeah it probably makes sense to just do that out of the gate and slow yourself down a little bit ahead of time because it will be a massive pain to do later on um but you know if you're if you're building something small and yeah you got to go prove your your product is actually useful first um are you using tools like uh breakman and i've heard of some other snip or something, which is like a kind of like a code climate that will go and scan your code for vulnerabilities. And I know, you know, GitHub does has their built-in tools. Uh, what tools are you using for like scanning for security stuff? We use Breakman. Um, we also have a pretty. Uh, we don't just use the standard Breakman config and things like even in the repo, but we have a lot of additions to that and um, customizations in there. Um, but that's pretty much the tool we rely on for <laughs> uh, for our security checks. I do have to say something funny that I find about Breakman is that Breakman gives you the report that says no obvious security vulnerabilities found. Um, if you knew about stuff that wasn't obvious, wouldn't you report it? So why are you saying only no obvious ones are found? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> should just be no known. <laughs> right anyway. yeah it's like the like any known one is going to be obvious you know right. or whatever like yeah that's pretty anyway, funny that's just a personal thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah jason you have any other uh questions to dig in i think that i think you covered them all i am really glad you joined us this is uh this was a fun episode yeah well th- yes thank you for having me um Happy to come back on any time. Um, uh, selfish plug. We are hiring. 
oddball.io slash jobs. Um, <laughs> but anytime, and if uh, I'm sure there's other folks uh, at our company um, that deal with the other aspects of our sites that if you want to have on, I'm sure I can make some introductions for y'all. Cool. Yeah, I, I think it would be really cool. I mean, a lot of people, I think, are looking for jobs to work more in open source. I mean, of course, the dream is like you, you're you working on open source and your own projects, but this is a really cool you know thing to work on where you get to work on stuff that is probably big and hairy in, in many different ways. So it's like lots of things to learn, especially with AWS uh, GovCloud and all that. But then also like all your code gets to be open source. That's pretty awesome. Like not a whole lot of jobs that you get to go publish. Everything you do is open source. That is neat. Yeah, it's definitely fun. Well, cool. Uh, I guess that wraps it up. Um, Jason, we uh, need to be asking people to review us on iTunes if they like the episode. So go find us, Remote Ruby on iTunes. And I think you updated our uh, our logo recently, didn't you? Yeah, the red started to offend me. It was just so much everywhere. So it was pretty it hurt a little. So I like it. Well, um, yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter at exeid3 um, and gorails.com. And Jason at JM Charns. All righty. Awesome. Well, Chris, we'll, uh, we'll do this again soon. All right. Talk to you next week.